and Melbourne 4.0 is the name of the Committee for Melbourne's new initiative which they want to consult with us on. Uh, it aims to gather information about the future of Melbourne's economy with the idea that we need to start preparing now for trends and ideas that haven't even been thought of yet but are inevitably going to shape our city into the future. Uh, Martine Letts has a really distinguished background and has recently been appointed CEO of the Committee for Melbourne and uh, about six months ago and it's really great to have you in at Triple R. Welcome. Thanks very much, Kelly. It's great to be here. And we should start by um, talking about the Committee for Melbourne. It has a long history, but uh, I think still people probably think Committee for Melbourne. Is that the City of Melbourne? What you know, maybe tell us what it is. Yeah, the Committee for Melbourne's been around for just over 30 years, so we're a bit younger than Triple R. Uh, happy birthday, by the way. That <laughs> um, uh, we've be, we were created in 1985, and uh, we were created because the economy in Melbourne wasn't doing all that well, uh, and there were a lot of ideas floating around, uh, particularly in the private sector, about how Melbourne could be improved and how it could become yet again a you know global globally attractive city really and it is different from the city the city of melbourne is covers a much smaller ground community for melbourne actually covers greater melbourne metropolitan melbourne the city is a only i think the mayor robert Dole said the other day only 38 square kilometers so it's really quite a small but very intense sur- uh, surface we work closely with the committee with the with the council they're actually members of ours so our our really mission is to make sure that we can work together to shape a better future for melbourne and our stakeholders are Broad, So we have people from the knowledge sector, from the university sector, from the community sector, as well as from business. And we work very closely in developing policies that are kind of, we hope to be bipartisan policies. We hope to have influence with government on all kinds of issues of interest to Melburnians, be it livability, urban optimisation, infrastructure. Those are the sorts of things that we put forward some really good ideas we hope will have traction. And so over that 30-year history, there's no doubt been a whole lot of projects and and, um, different uh, things that have happened throughout the the Committee for Melbourne. But what are some of the, I guess, guess highlights where Committee for Melbourne has really led some changes in in the city and what we do? So the big big major first success I would say for the community for Melbourne was bringing more international flights to Melbourne and that was done in the mid to late 80s Melbourne now has a 24-7 airport which is a great asset for this city it's also by the way the um, Australia's freight capital air freight capital but that was one of the big achievements for the community for Melbourne right at the start and worked closely with the federal government because the federal government owns the land uh, that the that the airport is on we also uh, established we, the, the idea for Docklands came from the community for Melbourne now, you might quibble a little bit about how it was implemented, but that was a big idea that uh, the founder of the Committee for Melbourne, the first executive officer, had seen happen and work well for London. So that was brought back as an idea for, 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 for Melbourne. And I think, it, you know, now it's kind of developed into a pretty vibrant area. And to the extent that we talk about where the Rialto is about Midtown, because it's midway between the Spring Street and, and, and Docklands. The other... There are a number of other initiatives that we've taken, for example, the establishment of the Bio Melbourne Network, which is a really big initiative to recognise the contribution that the whole research R&D area makes in biomedical research for health purposes, but also in the advanced manufacturing sector. The uh, other 
things that we've established were things like the International Welcoming Desk at the airport for students and uh, also um, Melbourne Arts. There's a big contribution to Melbourne Arts Festival. So there are a number of smaller and larger initiatives that we've taken over the years that have had a lasting and beneficial impact on Melbourne. And so um, I imagine that many of those initiatives came from a sort of a consultation process. So you've kicked off another one. It's called Melbourne 4.0. It's called a task force. Maybe tell us, um, you know, who you're consulting with and I suppose what you're hoping to get out of this. Yeah, so the basic premise uh, underpinning the commi- this particular task force is that Melbourne has has really been doing quite well economically over the last decades and um, you know leaving aside the fact that there are obviously you know big differences um, between the haves and the have-nots but as a city and if you look at its employment figures if you look at uh, the kind of the tourism uh, the education all the kinds of things that make this economy work it's doing quite well but are we really understanding that we might be feeling a little bit too complacent about this and do we understand the impact of the digital transformation of our economy Uh, we believe that we know it's coming but we don't quite understand yet how much impact it's going to have on our people and our economy so we really want to use our membership base first of all to really understand what we're talking about here and what the impact of the digital digital transformation will be and second how we can explain it to people in a way that they understand and they understand what the opportunities are going to be because there will be a lot of challenges but there are also going to be some opportunities that's why we think we're well placed to do so because we've got a very broad stakeholder base that we can consult with and I mean, and I suppose from sort of that broad um, description that you gave there, I suppose we can look at the disruption in the transport industry at the moment. We're, we're seeing cab drivers at the front of Parliament House. We've seen um, the kind of uh, you know shared car economy be legitimised um, by the state government recently. That's a very practical outcome of disruption. Um, wh- what are you thinking of with Melbourne 4.0? What are the sort of practical, um, I-, I suppose, initiatives that will come out of it? So we, one of the things that we're aware of is that we can't predict the future, but we can certainly look at what the megatrends are and prepare for them. So this 4.0 task force is not just about gathering ideas it's actually about doing scenario planning to say well if this and this happens how what will be the outcome for melbourne and how can we prepare for that so there are already practical examples as you mentioned that the the whole taxi industry has been disrupted and uber has benefited from that but uber might be out ubered as well because when the driverless vehicle takes hold, who's actually then then they're not they're not going to be employing their staff anymore, and they're already preparing for that. So that's the the the, the point about the digital revolution, if you like, is that it's much it's much quicker. It's going to happen much more quickly than uh, than the previous uh, revolutions. So uh, you know. In the year 2000, there were 500 Fortune 500 companies, of which there are only a half now existing because they were disrupted. Uh, they were digitally disrupted. So that you know, we we need to look at where where the jobs are now and where the jobs of the future are going to be. But we can't predict exactly how it's going to happen because we don't really know. We can only use trends and use our people. You know, the 
the businesses, including the new and innovative startups, to tell us, to paint a picture for us about where the opportunities will lie. And something that, that caught my eye coming out of the um, Melbourne 4.0 launch last week was um, some comments by Medcorp founder Jacqueline Savage, and, and she was talking about her business, which, um, as far as I understand it, is wearable medical technology, so really sort of at the cutting edge of, of um, the way that we can you know, use and, and um, take in medicine and, and antibiotics and so on. Um, but she suggested that we don't really have the technical talent in Melbourne, coming out of Melbourne, for this really cutting-edge innovation in, in the digital space. And I guess that sort of raises questions about how we can plan for this. Is it about better education at the kind of school level? Is it about having tertiary institutions that are, that are really kind of, you know, top-notch in that regard? How do we begin to um, get better at that? Yes, Jackie's comment uh, was quite controversial, I think, because I think the general view is that there is talent here, but it's not being nurtured. And Jackie would agree with that too. So we're talking about a lot of people who have some great ideas, but they're not being matched by investors. So there is a, if you compare Melbourne to say Boston, uh, you know, Silicon Valley or, you know, Israel, there there are a number of countries and cities that uh, have um, an ecosystem that supports the development and, if you like, the kind of commercialisation of tech, good good ideas. So there is the there is a requirement, there is a, a need to densify, if you like, uh, the, the the culture of investment and venture capital for the kinds of ideas that, that Jackie and, and her colleagues have come up with. That's, that's the first point. Certainly on education, there is a agreement that we are not preparing young people sufficiently for what's going to be, um, you know, a, a, a life they're going to live where they're not going to have the same job. The predictions are something like 15 to 17 different times in your life will you change your employment, given that what you're doing now is not going to be, you know, is, is not going to be a valid job or, 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 a, or a job that you can continue in the future. So you have to be prepared to have the kind of education where you are, you have the kind of skills to the basics, cognitive skills, the basic skills to do with coding, with the kinds of, with, with IT, but also the kind of social skills that allows you to adapt and to apply the kinds of soft skills, if you like, that allow you to interpret and translate and manage the, what will increasingly be a service economy. It'll be the kinds of things that you, you, you have to have good empathetic skills. You've got to understand how to manage people rather than things. So, yeah. Yeah. And how do you match the sort of those trends and you talk about sort of mega trends and some of these kind of, uh, I suppose... Uh, workplace issues and skills-based issues with other really real situations where a lot of people are being priced out of Melbourne with housing and and might move as a result. I know people that are doing that thinking, well, I can't afford to live in this city or my current income, incomes aren't going up. So how do we sort of match those things together that we can attract talent and nurture it but keep people living here when housing in particular is so high? Yes, we pride ourselves as being the, 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 we pride ourselves as being the most livable city and we keep on uh, getting that moniker and it's great. We hear it all but, the time, uh, but, don't but, we? But, but, but the fact of the matter is that there are some real challenges, particularly with housing and with housing affordability. Uh, there is, uh, of course, um, something that you can't really control externally because the market takes care of a lot of these things. I mean, this is about supply and demand. But all that said, Melbourne has some very 
you know, some more land to develop closer to the city where people want to work than other Australian cities. So Melbourne already has an advantage that it has um, parts of land not very far from the CBD that can be uh, developed with mixed housing. So that's one of the things that we would be... We, we've always advocated for Melbourne um, not only you know, becoming more and more spread out, but also densifying its, uh, its, its urban environment in a way that uh, you can, you know, create more opportunities for, for, for people who want to come and live and work here and who don't want to live way, way, way out because they won't come here if they have to do that, particularly if we're thinking about attracting global talent, global investment. And uh, yeah, there's so many issues that um, <laughs> that come under this broad rubric, I guess, aren't there, of the, the digital revolution, the fourth um, industrial revolution, as, as it's being called. Um, what's the kind of uh, end point or I guess the, the first point where Melbourne t- uh, 4.0 will report back? So we, we are going to be now um, going to go into this um, scenario exercise with workshops with our members and we hope to prepare our first report in six months' time. And the idea of the report is not only to describe what we think is happening to Melbourne and where Melbourne's assets are that can be deployed to prepare, but also we hope will also help the Committee for Melbourne make decisions about where it's going to focus its advocacy efforts over the next few years. That's one of the things that it's done particularly well. It's transcended, it transcends the political cycle. It's a very broadly based group of stakeholders. And some of the things that we have spoken about and advocated for have taken more than a couple of years to implement. So this is a, this is a strategic exercise for Melbourne as well as for the, the Committee for Melbourne. And uh, we've seen other cities do this very successfully. So Amsterdam and Rotterdam, for example, they did these cut. They prepared for, even though it wasn't thought of at the time, what they did was they were able to prepare for Brexit because they, one of the scenarios they looked at was what would happen if Europe fell apart, if the European Union was no longer as functional as it was. And this was something that, you know, 10 years ago people would have said, they would have questioned whether that was ever going to happen. So this is, this is a, a good example of how a city can prepare for eventualities, for, particularly as we live in a globalised world now where we are affected so much by, by, by global economic developments, where we can at least prepare Melbourne for what it might do if there was a similar situation that we were faced with. And I wonder, I, I know I keep coming, I, I keep thinking about affordability and equality and you mentioned earlier in our conversation about the haves and haves nots and we know mm. in you know Western democracies, not, democracies, not just in Melbourne, that inequality is a real killer of an economy that we need to address that issue and I suppose is that, do you have representation in, in the Committee for Melbourne of uh, the, the community and, and these kinds of interests, Martine? Yes, we certainly do. Uh, we have a number of not-for-profits and we've had, they've been members of ours for quite a long time. Uh, Melbourne City Mission, Youth Projects, uh, and, um, St Michael's on Collins, we've got a number of not-for-profits that work with us. And actually today, in The Age, there is an article by the Chair of Youth Projects. This is the the um, the, home, the homeless facility in Hosiery Lane, where she talks about the importance of uh, access that that homeless people and the most, well, and, the, and Melbourne's most vulnerable need to be able to have access to and benefit from uh, the digitisation of the economy. And at the moment, they many of them have difficulty even accessing that they can't you know they have even have difficulty charging their phones uh, but they also some of them have even have difficulty understanding how to use the technology so it's a very interesting example of one of our members advocating for making sure that they are that they benefit from or that they have access to benefiting from these uh, these new technologies and the fact of the matter is that in many ways 
digital disruption has benefited the most vulnerable and most poor. I'm not thinking in particular about Melbourne, but you know, use of um, of text and, and and IT technology for people in developing countries for access to health information where they can't get access to a doctor. There are many ways in which you know you can bridge the digital divide if you do it properly and some of our bigger members like Telstra are also working on bridging the digital divide so you get you get those kind of opinions from both from all of our members about how that can be done and we hear a lot about um plans and strategies and look I applaud you know governments and organizations for planning for the future but we, you know at the moment we've got Melbourne 2030 we've got plan Melbourne and and I, I suppose as as residents of the city and people that that are really invested in the cultural life of the city and the like, what should we expect to come out of these kinds of processes? Do you think, Martine? So I think uh, you're right. There are a number of plans be- being devised, and and it's a, it's a complex organism, a city. For us, I think what we we hope we're going to be able to draw Melbourneans' attention to what they already have that they can draw on. And when you talked about the arts, I mean, we have an in incredibly vibrant art, um, artistic and cultural environment here and a design environment that I don't think everyone is quite as aware of. It's a great draw card for tourists. You know, Melbourne is well known as a global city of excellence for sport, for, for big events, but it happens also to be a global city of excellence for arts and culture. It also has um, a strong culture to develop people's creative talents. It's not just the people at the elite end of the spectrum, but also um, at the less elite end of the spectrum. So that's one of the things that we hope we're going to be able to highlight through this process is these are the things that Melbourne already has that, um, is th- that, that will continue to be important no matter how your economy is looking and also a great contributor to your economy. So we, we don't just want to draw on the obvious. Where will the, you know, the jobs of the future be in biotechnology or in, or, or in life sciences, but also look at the, the, the creative side of the equation. Well thank you so much for coming in. It's um, good to hear what's what's kicking off and I suppose if people want to find out more you can do by heading, heading to the Committee for Melbourne website and I'm sure they'd love to, to hear your ideas and um, for the future of this city and uh, Martine Let's CEO of the Committee for Melbourne, it'd be great to get an update from you and all the best with the, the Melbourne 4.0. Looking forward to it. Thanks Kalia. Thanks Dylan. Thanks. Uh, 25 years just over since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody handed down its final report and the Commission investigated the deaths of 99 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and made 339 recommendations at that time and uh, one of the key findings was that reducing imprisonment rates would reduce the risks of deaths in custody but today imprisonment rates have doubled really over the past two decades and we have another Royal Commission kicking off as we speak into the detention of juveniles in the Northern Territory. So what has worked and what hasn't over the past 25 years and is there a way forward? Uh, These are some of the points that will be discussed later this week at the Wheeler Centre events called 25 Years and Counting and one of the participants is Ruth Barton from the Human Rights Law Centre and it's really great to have you on Triple R again, Ruth. How are you going? Hi, thanks for having me. And I suppose, uh, I mean, why do you think it's important to, to mark the anniversary of this particular Royal Commission? Uh, well, as you said, it's 25 years since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, uh, where that commission made over 300 recommendations. Uh, and as you said, the situation now is actually worse than it was then. Uh, there's almost double the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are locked up at the moment. One of the key findings of the Royal Commission was that to 
reduce the rates at which Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people die in custody, we have to reduce the rates at which they're locked up. Uh, and governments across Australia are going in the opposite direction, and that's really concerning. And so what, what if anything, um, came from this Royal Commission in, in a positive sense, Ruth? Uh, well, if we look around the country, some of the, recommend, of the over 300 recommendations have been implemented. For example, in New South Wales, there's a custody notification system which says that uh, any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person who's taken into custody, uh, the fact of their custody has to be notified to the Aboriginal Legal Service and the Aboriginal Legal Service is Commonwealth-funded to run a 24-hour legal and RUOK line. So it essentially serves a dual purpose, whereby every Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person taken into custody has both of their legal and welfare needs met at that first instance. Um, but unfortunately, what we've seen in the last two months is an Aboriginal woman taken into custody in New South Wales. The police didn't call the Aboriginal Legal Service um, and for a number of reasons that hopefully the coronial inquest will uncover, uh, that woman tragically died in custody. So we certainly don't... We certainly haven't achieved... Um, best practice when it comes to implementation of the Royal Commission's recommendations. Far from it, actually, um, many jurisdictions, in particular Western Australia, which has the highest imprisonment, Aboriginal imprisonment rates in the country, have a really long way to go. And I understand, I mean, the, in the instance that the heartbreaking story that you um, just referred to there, uh, that, that there was a breakdown in the, um, the reporting in that instance for, for, that, for that woman who was put, um, taken into custody. Uh, that's right. Uh, she, the, the Aboriginal Legal Service wasn't notified. The custody notification service wasn't used. And no doubt that will be a key question in the coronial inquest, which I understand is due to be held later this year. And, I mean, you mentioned that there's, there's very high rates of imprisonment of Indigenous people in uh, Western Australia, for example, also the Northern Territory, and there are laws there that actually kind of um, make it more likely that someone who commits relatively minor offences can be incarcerated. How do we account for that when we've known about the, the things that have led to very high numbers of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people being in prison and being at, at danger of death because of those heightened numbers? How do we begin to account for that today? Um, that's, a, that's a really good question. If we look at Western Australia, um, almost or just over two years ago, we saw the very tragic death in police custody of Miss Dew, a very young woman who died after three days of being in the police lockup, and she was locked up for failing to pay her fines, fines that she incurred when she was a teenager for relatively low level offences. Um, since that time, the Human Rights Law Centre, together with the Aboriginal Legal Service, have been advocating very strongly for the Western Australian Government to change their fines laws so that they're fair and flexible, so that they have a fine system which is able to differentiate between those who will not and those who cannot, like Miss Do, pay their fines. Uh, unfortunately, we're still waiting for those reforms. We're still... Um, we're still optimistic that the Western Australian government will change their fines laws so we don't see more and more Aboriginal women being locked up for unpaid fines and so 
we avoid another um, tragic death in custody like the one we've seen involving Miss Do. And o- over the years, we've heard a lot from um, Patrick Dodson, who's now a senator for, for uh, Western Australia, on this. He was a commissioner 25 years ago um, in the Royal Commission for Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. We also have heard from Mick Gooder, who's now a commissioner um, for the no- Northern Territory um, Royal Commission. He's been calling for justice targets, him and others. Uh, do you think that um, people such as this in these positions will start to bring change from, from that level, at the government level, uh, Ruth? Yeah, I'm really optimistic and really hopeful. Um, both Senator Dodson um, and Mick Gooder are long-term fantastic advocates. Um, I think more broadly, though, they're tireless in their advocacy. If we take, for example, the Royal Commission into Institutional Sexual Abuse, um, I can't imagine Australia tolerating the situation of that commission making recommendations and 25 years later those recommendations having not been implemented and the situation being far worse for children in institutional settings. Um, So I think we've got to ask ourselves as the Australian public a really deep question of why it is we tolerate governments um, lacking political will to implement recommendations that we've known about for 25 years that will work to reduce Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's imprisonment rates and therefore um, death in custody rates. And that that goes right to the heart, I guess, of, of the point of, of royal commissions and how important they can be or, or sometimes aren't in, in bringing about real change. And, of course, there's a current royal commission into the protection and detention of children in the Northern Territory, which was kind of spurred on by that shocking Four Corners report uh, a little while back. And there was widespread support and, and applauding from people for, for Malcolm Turnbull, I guess, getting on the front foot with that once once that had such a widespread airing and there was so much um, disgust, really, from people people in the community in response to it. Are you hopeful that this Royal Commission will have teeth, that we'll see kind of real change once the, the final report is delivered? Um, I am hopeful, but one, uh, two things I should say the Northern Territory Government could be doing right now. It's a new government uh, and certainly they've um, spoken of their commitment to reform these really critical youth justice issues, the first thing they should be doing is not necessarily waiting for the findings of the Royal Commission to implement change. Young people who are in youth detention as we speak should be safe and the Northern Territory Government should do things like ban solitary confinement, like introduce an independent inspector of custodial services to make sure those young people's human rights are protected um, while the Royal Commission is ongoing. Um, The second thing that they should be doing is we saw in Victoria with the Royal Commission into Family Violence, the Andrews government commit at the outset to implementing each and every recommendation that that Royal Commission made. Uh, It would be a tremendous gesture of good faith for this Northern Territory government to say that they are committed within a reasonable time frame to implementing this Royal Commission into Youth Justice recommendations. Um, I think that would instill a great deal of faith that um, 
things are going to change in the Northern Territory and change for the better. Um, I think what you were just saying there, Ruth, um, is something I've been thinking about, that often the failure of Royal Commissions isn't the Royal Commission itself, but the implementation of it, that our policymakers uh, fail to implement the recommendations. And I wonder, is there a risk, if this continues to happen, that we will become fatigued into Royal Commissions? Or do you think we really should be, uh, I suppose, hounding governments and making them accountable if they don't take recommendations? Uh, again, I think that's a great question and you rightfully point out that it's not a question of us not knowing the answers and how to solve difficult policy solutions. The issue is the lack of political will and holding our governments to account for justice issues and making sure that vulnerable and marginalised people are protected and not having their human rights abused. Um, and what we saw on Four Corners was really the result of years and years of um, the Northern Territory government failing to be held to account for um, what was going on in the Youth Justice Centre. We knew about what was going on there. The public knew about it. It had been reported on, but it took a Four Corners episode to really galvanise and outrage the nation. Um, absolutely, we need to be holding our governments to account um, repeatedly for these issues. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people nationally are 13 times more likely to be locked up than non-Indigenous people. This is um, one of the biggest human rights issues confronting Australia. And, and, and it's a and hearts and minds thing. I mean, that's what political leaders say, hearts and minds. There's no appetite for change at the moment. These are the kinds of things we hear coming from them. And do you see that then it is the public that actually has to, to take responsibility ultimately? Uh, well, I think it's also up to our leaders to lead uh, and to change the hearts and minds of the public if they think there's an issue. Um, but what I would say is I've seen fantastic public support and groundswell of support for change. When we, again, look at Ms Dew's death in custody, there was national outrage about that. If we look at Dundale, there's national outrage about that. There's leadership roles that the federal government should be playing in terms of um, one key thing they should be doing immediately is ratifying the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture. That's a really long way of saying um, implementing oversight mechanisms for places of detention to make sure human rights are protected. And there's also leadership roles for state and territory governments to stop relying on law and order politics and start implementing evidence-based policies that work to keep us all safe. And something that, that many people have called for, including uh, Commissioner Mick Gooder, is the introduction of, of justice targets or, or incarceration rates being included, for example, in the, the Close the Gap initiative, which reports back every year. And we haven't seen a lot of movement on, on some indicators um, in that reporting process. We have seen improvements in some others. Do you think that, that including justice targets would make governments uh, take the, the problem of Indigenous incarceration more seriously? Uh, absolutely. Justice targets and measurable goals to reduce Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's over-imprisonment. If every government around Australia, including the federal government, was held to account as to whether or not they're achieving that target or getting closer to achieving that target every year in Parliament, I think we would have far more transparency and accountability around this issue. Uh, so absolutely, I think justice targets are a key element of addressing this national human rights issue.
Thanks so much, Ruth, for, for being on um, Triple R today. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. History of apple growing in Victoria in many ways mirrors the changes in our city where once there were orchards to the east of Melbourne in places like Hawthorne and Baldwin, now there's houses and where once there were dozens and dozens of varieties of apple available, we have now just a handful that are commonly available at veggie stores and supermarkets and the like. Uh, Johanna Christensen can tell us even more than that. She's a PhD candidate who's been re- researching the history of apple growing in this state and it's really great to have you in, Johanna. And I understand it was the remarkable collection of waxed apples at the Museum of Victoria that got you started on this. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. So my um, PhD scholarship um, running through the Melbourne um, Uni and also the Melbourne Museum um, was supposed to look at the rural change in Victoria and changing biodiversity and um, sort of mapping it against social change. And um, I was to use the collection of wax models um, housed at the Museum of Melbourne and um, just they have over 1,800 different wax models of fruit and vegetables, um, bananas, peaches, potatoes, cherries, all sorts. Um, The biggest collection are the apples and they just really inspired me and they're amazingly beautiful and that's when I started looking at the history of apples. And I think, I mean, you can actually see them online, everybody, and I was having a good look through and they're not the sort of perfect supermarket-looking apples. They actually have blemishes and, and, uh, you know, I suppose almost fungus on them, the wax models. They're very realistic. They are very realistic, yeah. And, of course, the the reason why they were made was to um, demonstrate early settlers what could be grown in Victoria in the colony and to model the pests and diseases on them. And so they had a very practical use back then. They were also used internationally to promote the horticulture industry overseas and across Australia. So, um, yeah, they were both. They, they were very practical and they were very aesthetically beautiful. And so why don't we have as many apple varieties still growing in Victoria? So 150 years ago when we started growing apples, um, technology was obviously very different and apples couldn't be stored as long as we can store them now in modern cool storage um, So we had to grow apples over a longer period of time and um, have different ripening times, so kind of stagger the growing and the ripening of the apples. Whereas today, with modern cool storage, we can keep apples a lot more longer. And um, apart from that technology aspect, there's also the use. So a longer time ago, um, apples were grown for many more different uses, so baking, cider making, preserving, whereas today, if you go into the supermarkets, you really only get eating apples. Yeah, that's true, and if you want the others, you need to grow them yourself or have a very uh, unique source for for sort of more sour apples or whatever. Yeah, of course, there's a lot of um, stale heritage orchards around Victoria that grow still hundreds of different apple varieties, and you can find um, those varieties that are modelled into wax at the museum you can still find on, on trees in those orchards. And what are, are all the apple varieties that we have in Victoria uh, introduced from, from other parts of the world originally or do we have any native varieties of apple? No, there's no native apples. So apples um, actually originate in Central Asia um, in Kazakhstan. So thousands and thousands of years ago, they came via the Persian trade routes um, into into Europe and um, people started cultivating those wild apple varieties. 
and um, then obviously they came to to the Americas, Australia, New Zealand, and now we have um, still a lot of varieties, but just because of the use, the different uses now, the varieties are getting a lot less. And so when you discovered these wax apples and, and wax or other, other fruits, how did that set you off on a, on a totally different tra- trajectory for your PhD? What did you kind of look into? Well, it just made my PhD really interesting to have those wax models to work with because, um, as you said at the start, they, they mirror the, the apple growing industry in, in Victoria. We, we, can, we know where, those, where the original apples came from that were then modelled into wax and we can map that so we know where those models came from. We know that apple varieties were grown in those areas and, and I found that a lot of those areas are still apple growing areas today. So a lot of the original models came from, from central Victoria and Harcourt and, of course, Harcourt is still an apple growing area today. Very different, but it still is. And so are we seeing changes? I mean, you know, Tasmania, I think it calls itself or whether we call it the Apple Isle. So we know that there's a lot of apple growing in, in Tasmania and I imagine apples require then a a certain kind of climate Uh, are we seeing that climate change impact on apple growing in Victoria yeah so there's um, a lot of research being done on how a changing climate will impact on apple growing and we're finding that over the years already orchardists have adjusted to changing conditions so with technology um, orchards can be um, cooled down, they can be covered in frost cloth, in hail protection cloth, sun protection cloth, um, overhead cooling. So a lot of they, those changes have already been happening and, and will continue in the future. And, of course, apple varieties that, that suit that changing climate will be um, more dominant. And so where did these wax apples travel to? I want, understand they were used overseas, in, and we're talking sort of the 18th century, are we? 19th century, 19th century, yeah. So they were made, um, I think, in 1868. Um, the first wax model was made. And then um, increasing in the next decades, um, there were a lot more made. And we found that in 1875, there were the bulk of the wax models made. And that's because there was an international exhibition in Melbourne and also for the centennial exhibition in Philadelphia where a lot of the wax models were taken to to promote um, the colony's ability to grow apples. So you were able to handle all, all these models? Yeah, I did a little bit, yeah. yeah. And that, do they look as... Uh, in uh, As pictures of them, they look really realistic. Do they feel... they Do they look realistic when you actually hold them in your hand? Yeah, they're amazing. So um, they, they vary in weight. So early on, the, the material they were made out of was a lot heavier, whereas then later on they were made out of plaster and became a bit lighter. Um, but they look a lot more real than they feel. Once you pick them up, you can tell that... It's probably not an apple, but having said that, um, one of the museum curators told me that they left an apple on the desk overnight and in the morning it had bite marks on it. So <laughs> <laughs> Someone got confused. That's really funny. Uh, Johanna Christensen's with us. We're talking about her PhD, which is into the history of apple growing in Victoria, and it has changed over the past 100, 150 years. And I wonder, um, Johanna, when, when it comes to growing apples, so around Harcourt is, is where it's kind of centred these days, are those areas secure? I know that you know parts of Melbourne where there used to be apples, we don't have orchards anymore because we need it for housing. Is that likely to happen in the current apple growing areas, do you think? 
Um, I guess there is development around Harcourt and you know, a lot of lifestylers are moving into that area. But um, there are still some growers out there and um, the, the, it, I wouldn't say the apple industry is centred around Harcourt. It's probably more in the Yarra Valley, um, Goulburn Valley. That's a lot of the fruit growing is happening out there. Um, Harcourt still has those apple growers, but there's probably less than a dozen left these days, whereas 100 years ago there were probably almost 100 growers there. So just the number has shrunk a lot. Is that partly due to kind of demand and, and global economic conditions um, having an impact on, on the ability of, of people and farmers in Victoria to, to grow apples? And we saw a number of years ago, it was really tumultuous times in the Goulburn Valley with um, SPC Ardmone not being able to buy as much fruit from, from orchardists. Has that kind of impacted on the, the number of orchards we still see today in Victoria? Um. There's a few answers to that question in the Goulburn Valley, actually, with what you just said, with the um, when the um, canning um, situation was happening, actually a lot of growers started growing apples because right. um, they lost their contracts on their stone fruit. So for the apples, that was good. There were more apples being planted. But um, generally speaking, yes, there's a lot of international demand um, with other countries that export apples. Yes, definitely. And I know, I mean, around the world, we know that not just in apples, but in all sorts of different um, food industries, uh, the number of, I mean, we call them heirloom varieties now, don't we? So that, that they're de- in, um, declining and there is a real rush to try and um, store seed from ancient um, wheats and, and so forth. And is this happening with apples as well? Are we storing seed from heirloom varieties so that we have them into the future? Do you know? Well, the interesting thing with apples is that um, the apple seed is never true to its parents, so we can't just um, plant seeds from a pink lady apple and um, it won't be a pink lady tree. Um, So there's a myriad um, different varieties that could be grown out of one seed. So storing the seeds is not going to protect a certain variety. So we really have to preserve um, apple varieties in place on the trees. And that is happening. There are um, some apple heritage orchards around Australia and around the world and um, so some research is being done in the US where uh, the researchers are going back into Central Asia, into Kazakhstan, into those wild apple forests to collect the seedlings and take them back to their laboratories and you know do their research on them there so yeah but that has to be done in place. So just And they need to actually take the, the tree? Like a, yeah, a seedling yeah, version or of it. have to, like a piece of the branch to graft onto other trees, yeah. Who knew? That's really fascinating. And so what will come of your research, Johanna? I understand you've you've submitted your PhD and, and uh, I mean, I suppose this is another piece of our, our history here in Victoria that we had extensive apple orchards and, and not so much anymore, but it still sounds like a thriving Yeah, apples are just a great thing to research because people connect with apples. And while I used apples as a, I guess, as a lens to look at um, changes in agricultural production more generally, more broadly, um, apples connects people. And everyone I talk to about my research has a story about apples. And everyone loves apples except my dad. He's the only person who doesn't who doesn't like (laughs) apples. But I always said I'd love to write a children's book about apples and the biodiversity of apples just to reach that broader audience which you don't really um, 
get to with your academic research yeah. sometimes. And yeah. it is like, you, you, it's right about these stories about apples. Like I know my um, mother-in-law always talks about how her mum, who grew up on an apple orchard, could hold an apple in her hand and then twist it and break uh, it in half yeah. in one mm. twist. Yeah. But, I mean, try and do that is so hard to do it. Um, and that, I mean, I suppose, are they the kinds of stories you're talking about? Yeah, or maybe? yeah. And just old apple varieties or this great apple cake with a certain old apple that was grown, you know, on the big apple tree out the back. So, yeah. I want to taste them, these old apples. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's what you can't do with a wax version. No, <laughs> you can't try. It's like smell or something. <laughs> were, were the wax versions used at all for kind of ornamental purposes? I mean, I know growing up my grandma, for example, had fruit bowls with fake fruit so like you know plastic cheap fruit in a bowl because it looked nice were they used for that at all or? not that i know of no they were really made to to showcase what could be grown mm. um and i guess in that sense as i said they were a practical collection and then they went into more of a heritage collection but i don't really like calling them that because they still have a lot of meaning and they make history tangible and now there's a lot of of those wax models on display at, Sci- at Science Works at the Think Ahead exhibition to show what different varieties were common in different decades. And even going back to Harcourt as an example, how the wax models imbue place with meaning. So a few years ago, there was um, a freeway going to be built around Harcourt and it was built eventually but a lot of the landowners were in opposition because they didn't want the freeway going across their land. One family in particular, I think they were a fifth generation apple growing family and with the help of the museum they actually used those wax apple models to I guess make a case that their property has historic meaning because their ancestor was one of the men from Harcourt who donated a lot of the original models to the Melbourne Museum to be modelled into wax. So that history, and they successfully lobbied against that freeway. Yeah, it connects to today. Amazing. Well, congrats on your um, PhD. It's no mean feat to complete such research and um, all the best into the future. Thank you so much.